Well, in the reading corner today, I'm very pleased to be welcoming back Jennifer Bell. Uh, Jennifer is a former bookseller turned children's author. Um, her debut novel was The Uncommoners, and we have talked to Jennifer before about her series Agents of the Wild. Last year, or was it the year before, Wonderscape, um, her gaming novel was published and was very popular in spite of lockdown. And so we're thrilled to be talking to Jennifer today about the second book in that duology, which is called Legendarium. Thank you so much for having me back. Now, I know that a lot of people have read Wonderscape, but it's possible that some of our listeners won't have read it yet. So I think uh, to start, we should have a bit of a recap just to give a flavour of what the book is about. Yeah. So Wonderscape is about three young people who go to the same school, but they don't know each other very well. And at the beginning of the story, they're all walking to school and there's an explosion in a, in a house and they hear a dog crying and they go to rescue the dog. And in doing so, they unwittingly walk through a portal in space and time. They get blasted 400 years into the future. And in the future, video games have evolved into in-reality adventure games, which happen for real around you. They find themselves trapped in one of these in-reality adventure games called The Wonderscape. And they have to play their way home through the game um, to get back to the 21st century before time runs out. I want to talk about the technology and the gaming and the future uh, <laughs> in a little while. But before we do that, I'm going to lead our listeners into thinking about Legendarium uh, because it involves the three children going back through another time portal they end up this time in 2493, which is 20 years on from their last visit. And they find themselves in this new space. What can you tell us about 2493? Well, in 2493, uh, yeah, things have changed from when they were last in the future. And they do meet a few familiar faces, but uh, lots and lots of the characters are new. They find themselves in a new in reality adventure game called Legendarium, which is themed around legends from across the universe. So legends from from Earth, but also legends from all sorts of different places. And they come together in this big melting pot of the game. So the game is organised into different levels and in each level there's kind of lots of different legends mixed together. So it's just a really fun um, unexpected way that they have to kind of play through the game and meet all of these different legends. It's very playful and I did like the the mix of legends so that you're not just playing out something you already know but you've got this kind of fusion going on which is really exciting and the levels are organised around islands so like the home island is Atlantis that's where they that's, set out. Yeah that's kind of the safe space in the game where they're not going to be attached from anything and they can go to the shops and buy equipment and there's a bookshop there and they can learn about different legends which obviously makes them much better at the game and it's it's all themed around the lost city of Atlantis. There's a big stadium there called the Kraken which looks like the sea monster the Kraken where everyone goes to watch the tournament lots of players play and there's the Great Library of Alexandria is there and there's the Bermuda Triangle. So it's all kinds of things. I, I went through, I did so much really fun research 
um, and lots of different legends. And legends are just so fun to write about because they're full of mystery. You know, a legend in itself is just you're not sure whether it's true mm. or not. And it's a great story. It survived the test of time. And so it's it's just it's really fun to write a futuristic mm. video game based around legends. <laughs> I'd love to hear a reading, actually. It's from fairly close to the beginning of the book. Uh, but maybe we need to say a little bit uh, about what's happening here. So Arthur, Ren and Cecily, the three main characters, are actually standing outside the Kraken. They've been blasted to the future and they know that to get home, they need this thing called a time key, which enables them to travel through time. And they've discovered that the only way to find it is to enter themselves into um, a tournament that's happening at the moment. And this is where we pick it up. The thought of being in competition with someone like Griffin Ramsey made Arthur's stomach shrivel to the size of a walnut. He knew entering the tournament was an extremely dangerous plan, but it also seemed like the fastest way to locate the time key. And given that they could turn into protoplasm at any moment, speed was of the essence. All right, he said with a deep breath, let's do it. We need to find out how you enter, Ren decided, surveying the area around the Kraken. Cecily, why don't you ask one of those mermen? They look official. Cecily pointed to her chest. Why do I have to ask them? Because out of the three of us, you're the most persuasive. Ren replied. It certainly isn't me. I couldn't even convince you to enter our hot dog eating contest. That's because the contest was moronic, Cecily said, flatly, and wasteful. Arthur rubbed the back of his head, feeling embarrassed. Ren's right, it needs to be you. Plus, you have purple hair. A mermimic might relate to that. All right, fine. Cecily straightened her jacket and marched up to the nearest merman, whose seaweed green hair was styled into a scallop-edged mohawk. Excuse me, I was wondering if you could tell me how to enter the Iron Tide tournament? The merman peered down at her. And you are? His booming voice was like waves crashing against rocks. Cecily shrank back. For a moment, Arthur thought she'd lost her nerve, but then she cleared her throat and said, My friends and I are new here. We haven't visited Legendarium before. So you're a nobody, the merman clarified. I doubt Lazarus Sloan will let you enter the tournament if you don't have any fans. Fans mean views and views mean advertising. But before Lazarus, you'd need an iSports license from the UGP. The UGP, Cecily echoed. The merman folded his sizable arms. You mean you've never heard of the Universal Gaming Police? Where are you from? The Outer Rings of Navagool? The UGP oversee every iSports tournament in the known universe. Anywhere there are professional players, you'll find UGP officers. They prevent the use of illegal equipment and stop people cheating. I see, Cecily bit her lip, thinking. And do you know where the Hotel Loch Ness is? The merman pointed his tail in the direction of the Kraken's head. Two blocks that way on the corner. His fins bristled as a shout went up by the security gates. You'll have to excuse me. And with a flick of his tail, he swam off. Well, that was gross, Cecily complained when she arrived back. He had really bad BO, smelled like tuna. Arthur wrinkled his nose. That was a fact he didn't need to know. You heard him, I suppose, she continued. We need an iSports license from the Universal Gaming Police. If you can find UGP officers wherever there are professional players, there must be one stationed at the Hotel Loch Ness. Arthur turned in the direction of the Kraken's head. Good thinking. As they set off, Wren walked over one of the five-armed starfish in the pavement and another hologram ascended from the ground. What the, she exclaimed, almost falling over. Three people were rotating in midair in front of them. Arthur didn't need to read the scrolling text to identify who they were because it was like looking in a mirror. It was a statue of them. And it's a statue of them 
20 years ago yeah. when they did very well in the Wonderscape game. Yeah, they're recognised, which is odd because it's obviously 20 years later and they look exactly the same. So they have to come up with a, a solution for why that is. And they decide to pretend to be their own children. They decide to pretend to be their own children. And they end up being uh, interviewed uh, on TV and having to come up with an explanation for what's happened to their, their parents, mm-hmm. i.e. them. I love the invention of the UPG. Oh, yeah. Because gaming would need to be policed if it was this real. Yeah, and they carry um, lanterns and their slogan is like the light of justice. And um, yeah, so they're kind of present in all the different iSports games across the, the universe. Of course, we do have some villains in this story. And uh, let's talk about Deadlock. Yeah, Deadlock is the main villain and they are a name throughout most of the book. The children don't know who they who they are. Um, they, they're kind of trying to unmask them throughout the story. And Deadlock commands a band of raiders and raiders are young people that have had lots of cybernetic modifications. So they, one of them has kind of like a, a cannon on their shoulder and it's all kind of attached to their body. So they're really creepy and horrible and they're not very nice. And they're kind of um, smugglers and robbers. So they go across the universe um, smuggling technology and they deal in the black market, the gaming black market. So anyone who's trying to cheat um, in an iSports tournament will contact a raider and try and get a piece of technology that will allow them to um, evade the UGP and kind of cheat on the rules. One more character who I think we must pick up at the beginning is the wise man of the piece. This is Milo, who obviously we already know. Yeah, Milo Hertz um, is the inventor of Wonderscape and he's a genius. And when I was imagining him, I kind of imagined someone who looked a bit like The Rock, um, but was kind of a genius inventor. So he's kind of, he's really huge and hunched and his lab coat is always a bit stretched and he's a bit kind of bumbling and he wears, you know, sandals and a Hawaiian shirt and and he's genius. He's a complete genius. So he, the children are managed to get in contact with him um, right at the beginning of the story. Um, and he uh, is kind of trying to help them along the way. And he's also the inventor of Cloud, which is their incredibly amazing uh, mimic robot dog <laughs> um, who can transform into one of 12 different animals uh, who also helps them in, in the story. Mm-hmm. Their secret weapon. Let's talk about gaming, first of all, and gaming and stories. I'm assuming you must play games yourself. Um, yeah, I definitely do. I, for me, gaming is in the same way that I love reading and escaping. Um, it's the same. It's kind of like something you do in your downtime as a treat, just like just like reading, really. And gaming is um, huge. I mean, it's when I was doing the research for Wonderscope in the first book, the gaming industry um, is actually bigger than the music industry and the film industry combined. So it makes more money. So it's absolutely huge. And and every game that's made, there's just an enormous team of very talented creative professionals who are writing the story for the game who are writing the gameplay who are doing all the artistry um and you know there's there's as much craft goes into a game if not more um than books and films so they're really amazing and I love I love the story element of games so I love playing games that have a really great uh, really great story really good main character and lots of twists and turns in the plot and are kind of the beautiful ones where you get to explore a different world. So, and that really inspired the book. Which games are the ones that have had most impact on you? 
I think the first game I remember playing when I was, I think maybe like 13 or, or 14, was um, the very first Tomb Raider game. And I liked it because the main character was a woman. And she was, I mean, it's a complete fantasy because the main character is the daughter of a billionaire and she likes to go raiding tombs. And it's kind of very Indiana Jones, but um, with a female heroine. So I like that because I found it really empowering and fun. But I did find it quite scary because uh, there were certain bits where I was like, I can't do this level because there's wolves or things that I found scary at 13. So I remember that one. But then, wow, the, I mean, there's absolutely loads of games. I've just started playing the new Horizon game, Horizon Forbidden West. And again, that's got a female main character. And she is, um, her story is she kind of lives in this tribe and she's an orphan. She doesn't know who her parents are and no one will tell her. And the the story of the game is kind of the course of her finding out who she who she really is. It's true to say there are some Lara Croft moments in this book. Um, there's a sort of Indiana Jones come Lara Croft moment towards the end yeah uh, when they feel they've completed a quest (laughs) I could almost see the boulder rolling uh, yeah oh yeah wow I'm I'm hugely influenced by by films films are like my I did a degree in film when I left university and um, films are kind of my first love and yeah definitely a a lot of adventure cinema um, definitely influenced Legendarium uh, yeah, the open, in fact, it's dedicated to a friend of mine whose favourite movie is um, Back to the Future. And obviously this book, in this book, they're going Back to the Future as well. Mm. And so in the dedication, I've put like um, a quote from Back to, our favourite quote from Back to the Future. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. And I notice as you're talking about film, even some old classics get a mention in there. Uh, there's Wicked Lady, which I believe was a Margaret Lockwood film um yeah researching the um outlaws was really fun because they have fantastic stories they just write themselves because all that their reputation and the stories that were told about them they're such exaggerated characters it was really fascinating imagining how they'd be represented um in a game and they all of their legends are I and mean, some of them are really creepy and scary and I didn't put those ones in <laughs> but some I've used the I used the high women that had a bit of a Robin Hood reputation. So, um, you know, they were kind of, they were dastardly, but they were charming. Um, but yeah, the Wicked Lady, yeah, she was, um, she's a character yeah. as well. Now, I did want to talk about your future a little bit and why you went to 2400s, 2473, 2493. So that's as far in the future, say, as we are from the 17th century. It's not mm-hmm. so far that it's completely unrecognizable you could have gone anywhere why did you end up there I wanted to go uh I wanted to go so far into the future that the technology would feel like magic and that's because I I find that some people some certainly some young people um are are put off by science fiction and they like fantasy but they're they're like science fiction isn't for me and I was trying to write something that even though it's obviously science fiction because it's time travel, um, still felt a bit felt a bit familiar to fantasy readers. So there's no explanation. You know, they they travel to the future and there are cars with incredible engines and there are um, floating lifts and there are all kinds of things. And, and you don't need to explain it because the explanation is it's 400 years from now. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about 
your research around the cybernetics side of things and the cyborgs, because they feel, you know, we're sort of on the verge of a lot of that right now. Yeah, we are. Um, Nanotechnology is an emerging technology, which sounds in itself a strange concept because nanotechnology is the kind of thing that you see Iron Man using in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's that feels like something in a storybook. um, But actually, um, all of those things are, are emerging at the moment. People are putting lots of funding into it. And the cybernetic modifications are designed to be um, a bit gruesome because they're, they're for the villains in the piece. But actually, I think less gruesome versions <laughs> really will happen, maybe in the next 100 years even. Yeah, um, I think yeah. so. Mm. And what were the most fascinating things that you found from your research? I mean, people are putting, Elon Musk is trying to develop putting a computer chip into a human brain so that just by thinking things, you can switch on a light. Um, I mean, I, I, we're, we're honestly not that far off from having chips in our hands and being able to, you know, when you tap in your oyster, um, mm. not having to tap in your oyster and just putting your hand somewhere. I mean, we're not that far off from that at all. Uh, yeah. And, you know, things like lots of science fiction writers do have done incredible research um, and and so their ideas have actually inspired scientists to then go and develop what the science fiction writer dreamed up of. And in um, in Minority Report, where um, Tom Cruise plays the main character, Minority Report, the original short story is for Play Dick, but um, he kind of he's walking around and the advertising um, on the walls scans his retinas and from that they get all the data about what he likes doing and you know we're not too far from that now that happens in your normal internet experience so you're just adding those extra elements and I just I think it will all just slowly become normal. That's what science fiction does it kind of shows us the window yeah the the way that we're going yeah Um, but it doesn't come out of of nothing which is interesting I wanted to talk a little bit about your you know your your writing. I think you're very good at misdirection. But I'd love to know a little bit more about the plotting and when those kinds of things emerge, whether they come early on or whether you kind of feel your way into that and realise that you've got an opportunity here. The answer to that is it's both. Every book is different. Some books that I write, I have um a plot that doesn't really change. I, I kind of, I work on the plot and I might rewrite the plot just in a short form. And then when I come to actually write the book, um, it doesn't really change and it kind of sticks to the course. And then in other ones, uh, in other books, I might get halfway through and think, actually, do you know what would be really great if this person who I've said is a good guy is a bad guy, or if this person who you think is a bad guy quite obviously actually is, they've misjudged this person, you know, um, and sometimes that does happen halfway through. And that was what happened in the case of Legendarium. There was another there was another character in it who's not in it anymore. And by removing them and then kind of reworking things, I found what, f- what felt better, what felt more, more satisfying and more exciting and what challenged the children more mm. as well, the main characters. People will know when they read it, but I think that was a really good choice. And also... Um, allows what I think is one of the the themes of the book which is really about trust and who you trust because there's another player for instance in the game who they don't trust and turns out to be completely trustworthy and they learn to recognize his value and I thought that is such a um, 
an interesting idea to be writing about today when sometimes we don't know which information to trust. Yeah, it is hard. I think it's um, interesting, especially uh, in this situation when they're kind of blasted into a future and they don't know who anyone is and the characters that they're not sure about who to trust are in the public eye so not only do they have experiences with them directly but they hear lots of things secondhand about about the characters because the character because they're famous they're famous players um, and so everyone has their own opinion on who they are and what their motivation is and all those kinds of things and so the main characters um yeah in some instances are are, are too quick to judge but then they work really well as a team, the three characters, and I think they they pick themselves, they pick themselves up, they help each other, you know, they correct each other or they nudge each other or they suggest, you know, maybe we should think again and things like that. So I think that I think that helps them. Which is another key theme in the book, actually. If you think of where they started out at the beginning of Wonderscape and look at what they're working towards in this book. I think Milo sums it up when he talks about them reaching for the best in yourself and the best in each other. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, at the beginning of Wonderscape, they don't know each other at all. But yeah, by the by the time we get to Legendarium, they're solid friends and they're supporting each other. They've all, they're all facing different challenges. Ren is kind of facing up to expectations. Cecily's struggling with what she believes and what to do right and wrong what you know when when to do the right thing and even when it's difficult things like that and Arthur uh, is, is lacking in confidence really he's he's quite quiet and he struggles with confidence and I think the three of them bring out the best in each other and they kind of encourage each other in the ways that they need to. One other thing that I'd love to explore with you is the time travel itself and uh, the effects that you came up with. Brain freeze is a big part of your time travel. Tell, tell me a little bit about whether you played around with that idea and how you settled on the sort of mechanics of your time travel. So a lot of that is rooted in Wonderscape. The idea of an, of an in-reality adventure game in the future is that it's, it's just so big. It takes place on lots of different planets and players move between different levels through these doorways invented by this genius, Milo Hertz. The doorways flatten the space between space and time, which is how you can travel from one point in the universe to another in the space of just walking through a door. And something goes wrong with the technology, which is how the children end up accidentally traveling through time in the first book. So I envisaged, so the time machine is just a doorway. It's just the doorway. And time travel is just amazing. And learning about it is amazing. There was a fantastic book I read called Time Travel by James Glick. And it's a study of the history of time travel. And time travel starts when H.G. Wells writes The Time Machine. It, the concept did not exist before then. People didn't write about it. It wasn't discussed. It wasn't envisaged. That's it. So H.G. Wells was the first person to talk about it. And obviously his time machine is very large and kind of clunky. <laughs> and then obviously lots and lots of people have come up with lots of different ideas since then. But mine my time machine in the books it just had to fit with the plot and the plot was that something had gone wrong in a game and that's why the children were in the future so it just is a simple doorway by the time you get to legendarium the technology has changed slightly so instead of a doorway it's been reduced to this um small object which is a which is a time key which is what the children are after to try and help get them home um but the brain fees i just i thought about can you imagine traveling 
that incredible space in such a short amount of time and what would young people relate to you know as a quick as a quick feeling which is why brain freeze sprung to mind instantly so milo says at one point that time travel will be what it always should have been a legend now i don't know whether you have a view on this or not but you obviously have read about time travel do you think we will ever be able to travel through time <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question the skeptic in me says no because at the moment it's all theory theory based and i think even some of that is is very loose and is not is not proven but it would take you know a, a billionaire like elon musk to come along and say i'm going to do this so until that happens <laughs> Um, then no, I doubt it. But it's it's very fun to think about it. And it certainly makes for a fun story. One more thing about the time travel. Your children go into the future, into the gaming world. But there is somebody in this story that's quite interested in going into the past. And until you wrote this down, I hadn't really thought that much about tra- the distance between going to the future and the past, other than that you would have different kinds of sensory experiences but going into the past gives you this opportunity to rearrange history to suit yourself those are the words in the story Mm. so my question to you is if you could choose to travel into the past or into the future which would you choose and why I guess well I definitely wouldn't do anything dangerous I wouldn't be tampering with anything um, and in either timeline. So I'd probably just go for a short while and I'd probably do something fun. Like I'd go back in time to Woodstock and like have a day, you know, at the, at the festival. Yeah. See Bob Dylan in his prime, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> if I was going, I don't know, the future kind of it appeals, but it also doesn't appeal. <laughs> I'd love to jump forward and, and see what's happened, you know, see where we all are, see where, the actions of of this time and and my generation have have let have led us but I've just got a feeling I'd enjoy it more going back in time and just having a nice day out (laughs) well Jennifer I might be joining you at Woodstock if you don't mind we'll go and have a good fun time together Uh, but in the meantime hopefully your readers are going to have a good fun time in the future uh, in both Wonderscape and Legendarium so thank you so much for talking to me today thank you very much for having me in the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.